Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Hi there, listeners. A couple of weeks ago, I was honoured to speak at a LegalWise seminar. I was invited to discuss the Mostly at Fault test. I prepared some slides which I will include a link to on our website and in the email sending this podcast episode. Essentially, I was asked to provide a practical guide to what kind of cases will be assessed over 61% when it comes to cutting off stat benefits at the 26-week mark pursuant to Section 3.11 and 3.28 of the Motor Accident Injuries Act 2017, otherwise known as Maya. Firstly, just pausing on section 3.11 and 3.28. 3.11, of course, deals with weekly payments and 3.28 deals with treatment expenses. Otherwise, they're in identical terms. Importantly, mostly of 40 is defined by subsection 2 in both of those provisions to mean contributory negligence of the person in relation to the motor accident, in brackets as referred to in section 3.38, close brackets, was greater than 61%. Equally importantly, subsection 1A of both provision refers to the motor accident being caused wholly or mostly by the fault of the injured person. I stress motor accident rather than injury because a distinction was drawn in the Supreme Court matter of Singh, with which you should be familiar, and if you're not, there is a prior podcast about that decision. So only fault relevant to the causation of the motor accident is relevant when it comes to the mostly at fault test. Fault relating to the causation of injury alone is not relevant. So you won't hear me talking about seatbelt cases in this podcast. I'll only talk about contributory negligence cases relevant to the causation of the motor accident as opposed to the injury. So there have been a number of DRS decisions published on the CIRA website in recent times. So these are actual decisions by actual DRS assessors in assessing whether or not an injured person was mostly at fault and therefore whether their stat benefits should be terminated at the 26-week mark. The first category of cases I want to discuss is to do with pedestrians. And the first matter is AED versus Amy. You will note that on the CIRA website, the names of claimants are de-identified. So in the matter of AED, the injured person was heavily intoxicated. Their BAC was at a very high level of 0.236. The accident occurred in a dark area at 10 p.m., and the injured person was wearing dark clothing. The evidence was that the injured person crossed on a pedestrian crossing, and whilst they said that they had a green light in their favour, the assessor was not convinced by that evidence, given the unreliability of the injured person's account because they were intoxicated. The driver did not see the injured person until the impact, despite having an unobstructed view, and the assessor found that the driver did not keep a proper lookout. So in that matter, the assessor found 
that the injured person was not mostly at fault. Now, in most of these cases, the assessors do not specify the actual percentage degree of contributory negligence. Instead, they just focus on whether above or below 61%, whether whether, uh, mostly at fault or not. The second pedestrian example is ABC versus NRMA. It wasn't strictly speaking a pedestrian case because the injured person was riding a mobility scooter. On this occasion, the pedestrian crossed against a red light. The driver was travelling at 55 kilometres per hour in a 60 zone. There was some dash cam footage which showed the injured person moving quite quickly, in quotes, quite quickly, and looking straight ahead. The driver braked immediately and harshly but could not avoid the accident. In ABC versus NRMA, the assessor found the injured person to be mostly at fault. I think the evidence which was telling in that matter was the fact that there was clear evidence through the dash cam that the injured person was moving quite quickly and looking straight ahead rather than keeping a proper lookout for oncoming vehicles. Pedestrian case number three is AEM versus QBE. That accident occurred on Victoria Road, about 10 metres away from a pedestrian crossing. The injured person made their way through three lanes of stationary traffic before being struck in the fourth lane, the fourth lane being a turning lane. The injured person did not look right before entering the fourth lane and the DRS assessor found that the driver was travelling at a reasonable speed. And based on the failure to keep a proper lookout, I believe, the assessor found that the injured person was mostly at fault. The final pedestrian case I wanted to talk about is ABE and Amy. That was quite an extraordinary matter in which the injured person and a friend were lying on the ground in a McDonald's car park. It was 3am and the conditions were rainy and the area was well lit. The evidence was that the driver was travelling within the car park at 10 kilometres per hour and the driver ran over the injured person and the injured person's friend. Extraordinarily, the driver then proceeded to reverse over the injured person and the friend for no obvious reason. The insurer argued that the injured person was was not visible over the bonnet as the vehicle was travelling uphill, but the assessor rejected that argument, finding that there was reasonable visibility had the driver been keeping a proper lookout. And the assessor found that there was contribneg in the original injury, but not in respect of any further injury caused by the driver reversing over the injured person, which I find found quite interesting reasoning, given that the reversing would not have occurred had the injured person not been lying on the ground in the first place. In any event, the DRS assessor found that the injured person was not at fault for that accident. Okay, moving on to a different category, which is single vehicle accidents. Now, there's been a very significant decision in the sphere of single vehicle accidents in recent times. I'm referring, of course, to Singh versus AAI. Um, The citation is square brackets 2019 NSWSC 1300. We've had at least two podcasts about Singh in recent months. The first followed our masterclass in September And then I followed up with a further discussion about the impact on common law claims. 
But essentially, the court found in the matter of Singh, Justice Fagan, that there was no mechanism within the Motor Accident Injuries Act to deem a driver who was not actually at fault to be at fault for the purpose of finding them wholly or mostly at fault when it comes to terminating benefits under Section 3.11 or 3.28. Specifically, Section 3.25, that's 3.2 in brackets 5, deems liability in the CTP insurer to pay staff benefits but does not deem the owner or driver to be at fault. And Section 5.2, which is found within the no-fault part of the Act, cannot be used to deem a driver to be at fault for the purpose of terminating statutory benefits at 26 weeks. So the implication is that stat benefits can only be terminated at 26 weeks in a single vehicle accident if the injured driver was actually at fault in the causation of the motor accident. So I'll repeat that because it's worth stressing. When cutting off stat benefits at 26 weeks, the insurer can only rely upon actual fault by the injured driver in a single vehicle accident in relation to the cause of the motor accident as opposed to the cause of the injury. Now, there have been a number of DRS decisions to date dealing with single vehicle accidents. Most of them occurred before SING, so they are now irrelevant. And certainly any published DRS decision deeming the driver in a single vehicle accident to be at fault by virtue of either Section 3.2, Subsection 5, or 5.2, Subsection 1, no longer carries any weight following the outcome in a Supreme Court decision of Singh. There are two examples I want to take you to, however. The first is um, ABR and QBE. In that matter, the injured person was riding a motorcycle around a roundabout and the motorcycle slipped on a roadway. So it was a single vehicle accident, in this case, a motorcycle. And the assessor found that the accident was caused by the fault in the design of stormwater drainage system because there were some highly polished metal grates which provided inadequate friction for the motorcycle travelling across them. So in that case, applying Singh, the interperson was not mostly at fault because there was no actual fault in the causation of the motor accident. When I say applying Singh, that matter was actually decided before Singh, but the assessor used the same kind of reasoning which ultimately found favour in the Supreme Court. The second single vehicle accident I wanted to mention briefly was ABN and AAMI. In that matter, the injured driver lost control in slippery conditions. Importantly, the DRS assessor found that there was actual fault in that matter by the driver of the single vehicle involved in the accident in failing to drive to to the conditions, that is to slow down given the um, slippery conditions confronting the driver, and the assessor therefore found the injured person to be wholly at fault. Okay, so moving to the next category of actual DRS decisions to date. The next category is driver versus driver claims. So in most cases involving driver versus driver, I dare say that it is difficult for the 
insurer to demonstrate that the injured person was mostly at fault because by definition there is some fault by both drivers when we're talking about contributory negligence. I say difficult, but of course it's not impossible. In my view, there has to be an extra degree of recklessness by the injured person to be found above 61%. That said, there was a recent decision in the Court of Appeal of Air versus Swan. The citation is square brackets 2019 NSWCA 202. In that claim, and we've done a podcast on this before, in that claim, the plaintiff was riding a motorcycle and attempted to overtake another vehicle at speed on the inside, that is, between the other vehicle and the curb. The defendant was travelling in the opposite direction and made a right-hand turn across both the oncoming vehicles but didn't see the plaintiff's motorcycle because of the other vehicle present on the road. In that claim, the Court of Appeal found 80% contributory negligence. And as we explained in our earlier podcast, this illustrates the change in the landscape over recent years where we've moved away from the lethal weapon theory when it comes to vulnerable plaintiffs, that is pedestrians, cyclists, or in this case, a motorcyclist, and moved towards a personal responsibility test. So in other words, if a person in a vulnerable position fails to take personal responsibility for their safety, they are likely to be hit with a high level of contributing by the court or indeed by a DRS assessor. So there's a couple of actual DRS decisions to date which are relevant to this scenario. The first is ADV and Amy. In that matter, the accident occurred at an intersection controlled by traffic lights. Both parties argued they had a green light. The assessor found that the insured driver had the green light and it followed that the injured person must have travelled through a red light. So it will come as no surprise given that factual finding that the DRS assessor found the injured person to be wholly at fault for travelling through a red light at the intersection. The second driver versus driver claim I want to take you to is ABE and GIO. In that claim, the injured person was making a right-hand turn at 20 to 30 kilometres per hour with a green light. The injured person was travelling four to five metres behind the leading vehicle. The vehicle ahead of the injured person stopped suddenly without warning and the injured person braked immediately but collided with the rear of the vehicle ahead. In that claim, the DRS assessor found the injured person not to be mostly at fault, which illustrates the point I made earlier. There was some fault by both vehicles. The vehicle ahead braked suddenly and the injured person was perhaps not keeping a proper lookout and not keeping a safe distance between the two vehicles. Uh, But because there's some fault by both parties, it was difficult for the assessor to find the injured person to be mostly at fault. The final driver and driver claim I want to discuss today is ADI and Alliance. The injured person was indicating to make a left-hand turn down the road. At the same time, the insured driver was parked at the curb and pulled out into the traffic. The insured driver was parked 20 to 30 metres from the intersection at this point. The insured driver failed to indicate the intention to pull out into the traffic and the evidence showed did not check their 
rear mirrors. And ultimately, the front driver's side of the insured vehicle collided with the rear passenger side of the injured person's vehicle. Obviously, the point of impact is important. It appears that the injured person's vehicle had largely passed the insured driver's vehicle when the insured pulled out from the curb. So interestingly, in that claim, the assessor found not only was the injured person not mostly at fault, but that the insured was wholly at fault. So I followed that there's no fault at all by the injured person. Now, the final category of potential cases relating to mostly at fault decisions is cases involving alcohol, either because the driver was drunk and they injured themselves and want to make a claim, or a passenger in a vehicle controlled by a drunk driver. To date, I've not seen any decisions on the CIRA website dealing with actual DRS decisions involving intoxication. Those may well come down the track. The general observation I'd make is where the driver is intoxicated and has an accident and the alcohol plays some part in the causation of the accident, I think it's fair to say in most of those cases the injured driver will be mostly at fault. Indeed, they're probably excluded by Section 3.37 because they're guilty of a serious driving offence in being intoxicated whilst behind the wheel. It's different with passengers, however. I think it would be more difficult for insurers to demonstrate that the passenger was mostly at fault where the driver is intoxicated because if we're comparing the the relative culpability of the person who's drunk and gets behind the wheel against the relative culpability of the person who accepts the ride with the drunk driver, the person who actually takes responsibility for driving is going to be the one mostly at fault in my view. So that's my review of the actual decisions made by DRS assessors in mostly at fault disputes. I welcome any questions in actual real-life cases you might have in your portfolio. Um, These can be tricky issues at times. And, of course, we will shortly be launching, as you know, our intuitive app, MC Max, the McCabe Coward Motor Accident Explorer, which has a dedicated path to assist you with the most of your fault assessments. We've links to the legislation, case law, our most of your fault guidelines, and in also these actual DRS decisions which I've been discussing, curated into categories and into above or below 61%. Finally, I'd like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. If I don't speak to you between now and the new year, and looking forward to further podcasting in 2020. In the meantime, all the best to you and your families. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at or visit our website to see McCabe Kerwood's full team of specialists.